Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. All right, I want to welcome you to our new series, At the Movies, in which we are exploring spiritual faith through the lens of summer blockbusters like Star Trek. Now, I should probably greet you this way. Any other Vulcans here? We give you the Vulcan greeting. Go ahead, splash it back. I know who all the nerds are. I see you in the back. Good times. Yeah, maybe you were, uh, maybe you're a Trekkie. Maybe you still have those pointy Spock ears from Halloween when you were a kid. You idolized Captain Kirk. Even now, when you see a Priceline commercial, you still swoon. Must get a cheap flight. I know you guys are right with it. We're a little removed from the original Star Trek days, aren't we? But it's been reinvented. For a new generation, that's for sure. Um, and it's actually, if you've seen the movie, it's pretty good. A lot of action. There's some humor in there. William Shatner has been upgraded by super hunk Chris Pine as a young Captain Kirk. Even the new Spock kind of kicks uh, you know, some Vulcan butt there. But with the new cast, the crew of the Enterprise, it still has the same familiar, unchanging mission that it has had for eons. Even casual people can recite it. Do you remember their mission? To boldly go where what? No man has gone before. Yes, that's the mandate given the crew of the Enterprise to explore new worlds and they roam the outer edges of space, the final frontier, the great mission of Star Trek. What's interesting is that Jesus gave his crew, really, I want to call them a crew, but they were disciples. He gave his little band a similar mandate before he left this world and handed over the mission to a new generation. He said, go and make disciples of whom? Of all nations. In other words, he gave him a very bold mission statement. We actually call it the great co-mission because he was inviting them, the next generation, to partner with him in taking the gospel global to the very ends of the earth. What I want to talk about today is actually the next thousand years of Christianity. If we look into the future, star date 3000 AD, what challenges, what possibilities do we kind of see in the horizon? I mean, that's a pretty bold mission statement Jesus gave his crew. They were a little band of 12, and by the time Jesus left, they were huddling, if you remember, in an attic somewhere, just kind of confused at everything they'd witnessed. And in Acts chapter 1, we pick up the story of what happened next. Their history really sets the context for our future in many ways. So I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and turn there with me to Acts chapter 1. That's on page 755. We're going to look at the first 11 verses because they are the bridge between the events recorded in the Gospels and the events marking the beginning of the church. After being resurrected from the dead, Jesus actually spent 40 days teaching his crew and he radically changed them. I mean, prior to that, they argued with each other. They actually deserted Jesus. One even lied about knowing him. They were not bold. They were cowards. But here in Acts 1, they discover a new power source, the Holy Spirit, who is about to empower them to boldly go where no man has gone before. Read with me. Luke Luke writes this in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of what? Forty days and spoke about the kingdom of God. You have to understand this, that Jesus taught that his first coming to this earth inaugurated a new kingdom, something called the kingdom of God, where God's rule and his reign would pervade and govern everything. 
But when he returned to heaven, God's kingdom would remain in the hearts of believers through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Act 1. Yet the kingdom of God wasn't going to be fully realized until Jesus returned to earth a second time to judge all people and remove all evils from the globe. And he was like, until that time, my crew, my followers, are to work to spread God's kingdom across the world. The book of Acts really is where this work began and what the early church started We continue today. Look at me, verse 4. It says this. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to his disciples, his crew, so that God would be within his followers after he went to heaven. The idea was here that I'm going to give you my spirit to comfort you, to guide you, to remind you of my words. I'm going to fill you with a new power. Here's what happens. Look at verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. If you travel back in time, first century Jews chafed under Roman rulers. They were an occupied territory. And they wanted Jesus to free Israel from the boot of Rome and for Jesus to become their king. But the kingdom Jesus was talking about was not a political one, but a spiritual kingdom established in the hearts and the lives of his followers. And Jesus is saying here, he's like, God the Father sets the timetable for all worldwide future events. National, personal. So as we wait for God's kingdom to come, we have to be patient. As we said last week, remember this? God's not on our watch. He has his own timetable. And so Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And now check this, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And to what? To the ends of the earth. And Jesus described this series of ever-widening circles by which his disciples would boldly go where no man has gone before. He says, you're going to start right here in Jerusalem. That's your hometown that it's going to spread to Judea and Samaria. That's your homeland. Samaria, these mixed-race neighbors who were despised, tell them about grace and forgiveness. And finally take it to where? To the ends of the earth. This would have actually been Rome at that time, the farthest reaches that was known to man. Now you fast forward a thousand years and you realize Jesus said, the mission is going to go global. Go and make disciples of all nations and take it to the ends of the earth. In other words, boldly go where no man has gone before. And there's a symmetry here between the mission given to the crew of the enterprise and the mission given by Jesus to his disciples and actually to you and me. Look at verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So, after 40 days with his disciples, Jesus returns to heaven. Those two white-robed men are angels. They tell the disciples that Jesus one day will return exactly the same way he'd gone, bodily and visibly to the watching world. And this is kind of a rebuke to people who think that history is haphazard or it's random, or just, you know, kind of cyclical, as some people think. 
He's like, it may take time, but history is moving to a certain trajectory, a certain point in history. And the second coming of Jesus appears to judge and rule over the entire universe. Scripture says we are to be ready and, and waiting for his sudden return, but not by standing around kind of looking up into the universe and the heavens, but by working hard to spread the good news so that others would experience the salvation that Christ offers. Now, following this, two things quickly happen. Close your Bible for one second. Just keep your finger in Acts 1. The first thing is that the gospel spread, <laughs> as Jesus predicted. It like, boom, like wildfire from Jerusalem all the way over to Judea and Samaria and literally to Rome, which was the seat of power in ancient civilization. In the centuries following, it spread all across Asia Minor. Then it went to Europe, the Orient, and actually then over to our neck of the woods, North America, just a few hundred years ago. But two millennia of history, we're talking the rise and the fall of nations. We're talking years of innovation and progress, and Jesus' mission still moving on 2,000 years later. The second thing that happened is that every successive generation became convinced that theirs was the generation that Jesus was going to return for time number two. And you could understand that if you were one of his disciples. I mean, they'd figure, we've been here for the key events. We were here for his birth, his death. We saw his resurrection. We saw him ascend with our own eyes. They figured, we'll be here for his triumphant return, but they weren't. There were generations of Christians after that who were persecuted, severely persecuted. And they figured, well, it can't get much worse than this, and surely Jesus will come to deliver us, but he didn't. Same thing with the next, and the next, and the next generation, which simply means one thing. Jesus' mission to go and make disciples of all nations to the very ends of the earth is not yet done. The mission is still open-ended. No one knows the exact date or time of Jesus' return, including the Son. Matthew says that only the Father knows the day and the hour. And God's timetable is a mystery. As we learned last week, He's not on our watch. And Jesus' return could happen in our lifetime or my children's lifetime or their children's or the generation after that. Ten years, a hundred years, a thousand years. We don't know. That's why Jesus says, therefore, what? Keep watch because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. He actually said to them, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect Him. Scripture makes clear Jesus' return will be unexpected. And yet each generation tends to think that their unique circumstances have set the stage for His imminent return. I mean, take a minute, imagine living, I don't know, about 70 years ago, sometime maybe in the 1940s, a time of profound global upheaval the rise of a murderous dictator the likes of which the world had never seen, whose singular focus is to exterminate the Jewish people. I mean, if you were a Christian living during World War II and Hitler, you could understandably think, well, Jesus' return must be very near, and yet that generation, what? Passed and is passing. So here's my question of the day. If Jesus doesn't return tomorrow, or in the next decade, or in our lifetime, what will the next thousand years of Christianity look like? Because we still have the same charter to boldly go where no one's gone before. We're, we're the current generation, but our children stand in line behind us. And in 50 years, a new crew steps on board to fulfill this great commission. And, and my question is, what's the future of our faith? Because honestly, I think we're living in exciting times. Certainly as historical and technologically significant as any that have preceded us. And what I want to do with our time remaining is take a look at not only where the church has been, 
And where it may possibly go over the next, let's say 100 years, because 1,000 years is too many for me. But imagine the church in like 2050 or 2100, which some of your kids will live to see, by the way. That's, for, that's a fact. We are living in exponential times. There are three trends that are underway right now that are going to profoundly impact Jesus' church. It means we are living in exponential times, which, depending on your perspective, is either very overwhelming or very exciting. I tend to get excited about this kind of stuff, what it means for the church of Jesus to realize our God-given mission to boldly go where no man has gone before. One of the reasons I get excited about it is because of messages like this one I received via Facebook two weeks ago. It says this. It says, Hey, Pastor Tim, I have a cousin who is in Iraq and was complaining to me about the one thing he misses most is going to church. Well, I told him about the Internet campus and how great Liquid is. He happened to be online yesterday, the Internet is not the greatest there, and told me that there are now three laptops set up when the iCampus is on because there are so many soldiers who watch it. I want to say thanks to Liquid. We really are bringing church to the people, especially the ones who need it. What a great place for a church to be. Indeed, can we hear it? What a great place for a church to be. You guys are familiar with our vision. We take church to the people. And right now as we worship in this room, there are soldiers on the other side of the world in a tent in Baghdad having church. Can you get your mind around that? It's not even thinkable three years ago, but now it's a reality. More than that, that'll be regarded as normal by my kids. I mean, how many of you have a cell phone, right? Use Facebook. You know how to Twitter. What will the next thousand years of Christianity look like? I'm going to go out on a limb here and do a little futuring. And kind of future, you kind of need to begin by looking backwards. You've you got to look in the rear view and turn around and say, what happened the first thousand years of church history that we can extrapolate? Because technology has always played a decisive role in realizing our mission to boldly go where no one has gone before. Now, I know we all use texting and email, but the bleeding-edge technology that fueled the early church in Paul's day was letter-writing. Now, for those of you under 30, here's what that is. Uh, this involves paper, okay, you actually use a pen. After Acts, take a look at this, open your Bible back up. After Acts, there's a book called what? It's called Romans. It's not actually a book, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. In other words, the gospel spread from Israel to Italy. At the end of Acts, Paul takes a 2,000-mile trip to Rome, which was considered the ends of the earth, the ends of the empire at that time. And here's the deal. There was no New Testament at this moment because the Gospels, the eyewitnesses' testimonies of Jesus hadn't even been circulated in final form. So this, this letter you're holding, that's the first piece of Christian literature that had ever washed up on the shores of Europe. And after that comes Paul's letter to whom? To the Corinthians. Corinth was actually a major cosmopolitan city. It's in modern-day Greece. You can still visit it. And Paul planted a church there during his second missionary journey. He actually wrote two letters to the churches there in 55 AD. Now connect the dots. Keep going. Turn to the next book. Next comes, wait, Galatians. Yes, that's present-day Turkey. Paul wrote that letter in 49 AD, to the ends of the earth. And then you have Paul's letter to whom? To the Ephesians. And that was a strategic port city on the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor. It was the main route from Rome to the east, to the Orient. I want you to boldly go where no man has gone before. Do you see how the gospel spread in the first hundred years? 
Paul wrote letters because he's like, I can't physically be present in every city. That's literally why we have the bulk of the New Testament. How times have changed. Paul used pen and paper, but we're using what? Pixels, right? That's how I'm communicating to you right now. Not papyrus, but pixels at each campus. Same mission, different methods. Paul planted multi-site churches using a first century technology of parchment, high-tech stuff, bleeding edge, boldly going where no man's gone before, and the gospel did indeed go west. In the next 500 years, the center of gravity shifted further west to Europe, where it became synonymous with culture in the arts in the Middle Ages, and that shift became a trend. It kept moving west. In the next thousand years, it actually the center of faith moved west to kind of North America and South America. And so the Pope remained in Europe, where all the culture and innovation of the church focused, in the Americas. So it's really by 2000 AD where the United States, quite honestly, even blipped on the screen, where we kind of came to see ourselves as like the headquarters of the Christian faith. Which, catch this, means from its launching point in Jerusalem 2,000 years before, our ancient faith migrated halfway around the globe to the ends of the earth. The problem is we think that's the final destination. And it ain't. I mean, not by a long shot, not even close. This trend continues in 2010. The center of Christianity is shifting west once again. Right now, I need to just give you a kind of little radar, a little, little wake-up call here. We're not the center of Christianity anymore. Asia and Africa are experiencing explosive rates of church growth and conversions on a scale that dwarf anything we've seen here in America, quite honestly. I want you to consider this. 100 years ago, there were no Christians living in Korea. Virtually none. Statistically negligible. Today, 50% of South Koreans identify themselves as Christ followers. A century ago, the percent of Christians in China was unnoticeable. But the author, David Aikman, he's the author of a book called Jesus in Beijing, says we can expect 30% of the population in China to be Christian by 2040 which is a very good thing, because 2040 is also the year that China will overtake the United States as the world's largest economy. It will have the largest educational system in the world, the most churches, it will likely become the the leading cultural um, innovator. And given the speed of the church growth in Korea, in China, and extending that another 500 years, by by 2500, scholars actually say Christianity may be regarded as an Asian thing which Pastor Tom's been telling me this for years. He's like, it's a girl that's Asian. (laughs) The ship's underway. It's just not on our radar. We have no idea because we're so insular. There was a missionary to India. His name was Brother Bhaktek Zing. He planted thousands of churches across India, died in 2000. This is a picture from his funeral. Over 600,000 people attended the funeral of this Christian church planter in India in 2000. Who's heard of him? No one in the West. No idea. I mean, did you know that? It's very humbling. Today, African churches send more missionaries to the West than the West sends to Africa. Maybe you saw this a few weeks ago. The New York Times Magazine actually ran a cover article on this, how Nigerian Christians have a strategy to reach America over the next decade. They literally focus on these Nigerian missionaries from rural Africa are coming to New York City to evangelize because they regard our region as one of the least churched regions in the entire world. They're like, we've got to focus on that. 
I mean, if the move west continues as it has for the last 2,000 years, eventually the center of gravity will actually shift from Asia and return where? To the Middle East. Do you see this? Christianity makes a circumnavigation of the globe and will probably arrive back where it began in the next hundred years. Kevin Kelly, he's one of the lead editors of Wired Magazine, a futurist. He is also a Christian. He writes this, Unless Christianity in the U.S. becomes less parochial and more global, what happens in North American Christianity in the next 500 years may simply be the sideshow. The main event will happen elsewhere around the globe. Future trend number one. The center of Christianity is shifting distinctly west. Future trend number two. Technology will continue to revolutionize faith. I mean, after Paul used the technology of parchment to light that movement west, the church remained unchanged, really, until about the 13th century. And that's when the apple cart got tipped over again by technology. Do you know what bleeding-edge technology had everybody in a tizzy? Pews! I'm 13th century scandal. I'm not kidding. For the first 1,200 years of Christian faith, people stood for an entire worship service. They would read Paul's letter and everybody would stand. In fact, let's just go old school right now. Can we all stand up? Let's pretend. 12th century. Go ahead. All of our campuses, everybody stand up. Wake up. Stand up. Stand up. There it is. Everyone had to stand for two or three hours for the public reading of Scripture. That's how they did church. There were no mass-produced chairs and you had respect for the word stand up when the Bible's read. But then in the 13th century, <gasps> pews were introduced. And people were like, I don't see pews in the Bible. I just, I don't. And there was controversy. I mean, imagine, should we embrace this technology? What do you think? Should we embrace it? Let's do it. Let's all embrace it right now. Go ahead. Sit down. Go ahead. Do it. Oh, feels good. Oh, thank you. Technology. People, Paul said, the goal is to boldly go. And if pews can help people, introduce them to Christ. And people sat down in church. Imagine that. We're pretty thankful for that technology. But that was nothing compared to the next dust-up in the 14th century, that infernal organ music. I mean, that, you talk about a problem. There was a bloody fight in the church. I'm not kidding. Because up to this point, the organ was a secular instrument used where? At the pub. <laughs> Literally, it was used to sing pub songs while people hoisted a pint <laughs> in Europe. And Martin Luther walked into the bar and said, let us boldly go where no man has gone before. Let's bring that technology into the church. It was like a street fight. Because Martin Luther wanted to put literally, you know, theology to the music and people got upset. They're like, you can't bring a bar pagan instrument in here and you just add Jesus on the chorus and say it's Christian? It's too worldly scandal. But you know what happened? The gospel spread. By the 15th century, hymns became the new normal and the singing improved. And people learned theology because they could sing it. Remember, they didn't have printed Bibles at this point. So Luther had this grand idea that people could sing it, they could learn it. And then the biggest game changer in the 16th century, the Bible you have in your hands right now, you can thank a guy named Johann Gutenberg for that, the printing press. You talk about a curve-jumping technology. changed everything. Because up to that point, only bishops and priests had access to a printed version of Scripture. There was no such thing as my personal Bible that I can read for myself. There's study tools and research. No, no, no. But Gutenberg had a BHAG. He was like, let's not just take church to the people. Let's take the Bible to the people. Put one in everyone's hands, and they could read it for themselves. Dangerous idea. Gave birth to the Reformation. Because led by Luther, all of a sudden people discovered the church had a lot of man-made traditions that weren't actually even in scriptures. And all of a sudden, they had a chance to, to read Paul's letters for themselves. Like, the, like, like Martin Luther said, yeah, take a look at this. Take a look at Ephesians 2. And they were like, wait, it's by grace we have been saved through faith? It's a gift of God, not of works? 
wait a minute. You mean for hundreds of years we've been paying penance and giving alms and obeying rules. That's man-made religion. Paul's like, yeah, it's about grace. Jesus died for all men's sins. That's the gospel. That's why it's spread. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you deserve. And putting your trust in him, that's how you're saved. The church doesn't save you. Only Jesus does. Everybody needs to know that. You know what the result was? People protested. And protestantism was born. We protest. Down with religion. It's about Jesus. And Christianity was literally reformed. It gave birth to the reformation. The technology behind it all, the printing press, the Bible in the hands of the people. This is new technology you have in your hands. It's only about 500 years old. In the 19th century, a light bulb literally went on. People were like, you mean we could actually meet inside at night? Church isn't just for the morning? Yeah, only if you're Catholic. In fact, that was the construction of big concert halls really took off, and then audio by the late 19th century, loudspeakers and microphones were invented, and, and that allowed the gospel to go boldly where no one went before. Check this picture out. This is George Whitfield famous Protestant preacher in his life, preached 18,000 sermons to actually 10 million people. The largest crowd he ever spoke to was 30,000 people outside. Imagine this, an outdoors open-air preaching, and his biography records how after the sermon, he would, Whitfield would literally cough up blood because his vocal cords were so ravaged. But then came, click, radio. And across airwaves, Billy Graham preached the gospel to more than 210 million people during his lifetime. The difference? Technology. With radio, now a voice could be heard by people who weren't even in the same room. Well, I don't know. Can you still communicate the gospel truth even if the preacher isn't in the same room with you? Think about it. You tell me. <laughs> I mean, praise God that Brother Billy plugged in and said, you know what, I'm boldly going where no one has gone before. The message it stays the same. The method's always changing. You see a pattern here. Technology changes everything, but when it's first introduced, it's controversial. And in the 20th century came the motion picture projector invented by New Jersey's own, does anyone know actually? It's fascinating. Thomas Edison. Edison was a Christian, and actually he invented the first motion picture projector and screen, and he took the technology and gave the patent for it to whom? His church. True story, true fact. Who rejected it. Oh, we're talking about a Homer Simpson moment, right? I mean, <laughs> church said, no, that newfangled technology in here. Images in church. And this is where it really picks up steam because then television you have in the early 20th century and this kind of interesting fact. Did you know this? Today, there are more screens in churches across the country than there are in movie theaters across the country in America. So you're like, wait, wait, what, what? There are more screens in churches across America than there are screens in movie theaters across America. Yeah, some of you are like, what? Think about it. How about right now? Count the screens. One, two, three, four, one in lobby, five. Wait, when I check the kids in, six, seven, what the? Yeah, imagine that. Incredible. Think about that. Think about the potential for that. Folks, what this symbolizes is simply what just happened a few weeks ago. The shift from what? Analog to digital, right? Last week, everyone with rabbit ears on their TV, it went dead forever. Let's have a moment of silence for Laura Gregory's TV. Sorry, Laura. They turned the analog switch off, and the switch to digital culture is now here. And then all of a sudden, the age of the Internet, we are on the ground floor, full swing. I mean, Twitter, Google, Bing, Mozilla, those, they weren't even words <laughs> three years ago. They just got made up. The Internet is potentially the biggest game-changing technology of them all, 
for the Christian church in the next, really, hundred years, and literally it's just getting started. We are the launching pad. I mean, what difference will the Internet make to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? This is a picture of Francis Asbury. He is a founding bishop of American Methodism. He's a circuit rider. He means he rode a horse over a quarter million miles preaching the gospel, 16,000 sermons in his life. In the early 1800s, the gospel depended on horsepower. But in 2010, we don't rely on horsepower, do we? We rely on what? On bandwidth. Check this out. Today, I'll preach this message live to about 1,200 people at two physical campuses, and another four or 500 will experience it online. But by Tuesday, we're going to upload it to our media portals, iTunes, Facebook, Lightcast, all our media portals. And guess what? By month's end, it will be downloaded by over 5,000 people. And then it will be streamed live thousands of more times over the next month. You get this. Together in this room, we are a fraction of the larger community out there every week who unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is global. Geography and distance are no longer factors. The result, the gospel can be streamed and downloaded to, to as many people who have the boldness or courage to go, click, to boldly go where no man has gone before. If you trace history and scripture, it seems that whenever there is a technology breakthrough, the Holy Spirit seems fond of leveraging that new technology to take the gospel of Christ to people who have never been reached before. In fact, check this out. It's happening right now, right here in our church, in this room as we speak. You may have seen uh, Pastor Dave and his team on the internet campus. Here's a map showing some of the places, the countries where people have logged on to our internet campus in the last month. Actually, people who are live there today, you see people over here in Finland, Norway, the UK, um, Italy. We're back in Rome over here. Venezuela, all the way over to Japan, Australia, New Zealand. These are just pockets of people. Even the godless pagan country of Los Angeles, it's incredible. It's amazing. God uses all means. And critics would say, well, wait a minute, does that even count as church? I mean, can you communicate the gospel online? I don't know. Ask Dave. Not Pastor Dave, Dave from Northern Ireland, who emailed us this. He said, hey guys, this email is just a message of thanks to all you guys at Liquid for helping me get my life back on track and finally helping me find Christ. I'll be honest, I always found religion boring, and to be honest, I never really believed. But since listening to you guys via iTunes every Wednesday for the past six months, I have finally found Christ. How amazing is that? Is that amazing? That's amazing. That's I iTunes? What? He actually says he suffered his adult life from anxiety to depression. He says, now I feel peace in my heart. I only wish I could attend in person, but I live in sunny Northern Ireland. Ha ha. Hopefully one day I will. People like Dave are now serving as hosts in our online chat rooms during our services streamed online. They connect in life groups. Imagine that. The power of the Holy Spirit still flows through pixels. Can you imagine that? So Jesus' mission continues today. He may return tomorrow. But if the rapture doesn't happen in our lifetime, technology will revolutionize everything. Future trend number two. The final trend I want to share with you is the one I think we're most excited about at Liquid in the decade to come, and that is not only where our sphere of influence expand globally, but our circle of empathy will expand exponentially. As we know, Jesus kind of tipped the apple cart on this when he said, uh, so who do you guys consider to be your neighbor? He told an interesting story. He's like, who do you consider worthy of your concern or care? And he told the story of the Good Samaritan, and that was revolutionary. I mean, a thousand years ago, you were primarily concerned. You cared for your immediate family, maybe your tribe. 500 years ago, that expanded a little bit to maybe your city or nation, but now all of a sudden, the earth is flat. <laughs> it ain't round anymore. It's flat. If you ever read Thomas Friedman from the New York Times, he's like, we live in the era of globalization. Who's my neighbor? Well, the guy who lives next door, who I see disappear into his garage in his Lexus and never say hi, 
or my friend over in Asia who I text? How about my brother or sister in Africa who's dying of thirst? Who's my neighbor? With the advent of internet, Facebook, the web, it's not outrageous to have an expanded circle of compassion for those on the other side of the world who weren't even previously, we've never even been exposed to. I mean, it might be outrageous to us that slavery still exists in the world, just as it did in the first century, but the church globally is literally starting to mobilize to wipe out that global surge. Scourge, I should say. Humanitarian issues. Used to be the province mainly of missionaries and aid workers to address, and all of a sudden now we drill our own wells in Africa. Why? Because you can hop on a flight and be on the ground in 24 hours sitting in a mud hut living with the people. And instead of just being a casual observer, you can be part of the solution. I mean, that's what our, 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 our whole freshwater well projects are in Ethiopia about. Because our church, we want to have a global perspective. We simply came in contact with some troubling things. The idea like 1.1 billion people on the planet, are you serious, don't have access to clean, safe water? 1.1 billion? And we looked at each other and said, yeah, let's, let's do something about it. I mean, 80% of disease in children under five is waterborne. So we started digging wells in Ethiopia as a church, and it literally cut the disease rate in half in villages like Geisha, Ethiopia, overnight, literally in half. We like to say high-tech don't mean a thing unless you're high-touch as well. And it literally is transforming the life of our church. I want you to think about what has happened in just a year's time. You guys know the story. We started, you know, we're going to drill three wells. Wow. And then it was six, and then it was 12. You guys know the story. But this spring, many of you took the liquid water challenge, fasting and drinking only water for three weeks on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Africa. And the exciting news is this. The totals are in. And all told, the people of this church and globally our church online sacrificed $50,000. That includes lemonade stands by little girls in Basking Ridge to Italy, Canada, and Ireland coming together to impact Africa. People who never met came together to build wells in another country. And that's incredible. Let's just hear it real quick, okay? That's awesome. That's exciting. That's exciting to me. But when that happened, we said, could we, we could think analog about this. We've done 20-something wells, and we could do, you know, wow, four more, five more, ten more. Or we could think digital. Can we think exponentially? How could we actually transform an entire region over the next five to ten years? Now, how, how, how do you do that? So I started talking with the partners about the future, <laughs> about making a long-term impact, particularly in the northern region of Ethiopia, and they acknowledge that hand-dug wells, they're awesome, but they take a lot of time and a lot of effort. What they don't have is a drill rig. <laughs> Anytime you have to go beyond 60 feet into the ground, you actually need to bring a drill rig in to hit the aquifer. Well, how's a drill rig work? Take a look at this. I'll just give you. And I said, what, what is a drill rig all about? This is Magosho Health Center, and this is a hospital. That's where they get the water for their surgeries and all of their uh, sterilization. You can see, imagine going to a hospital where that was the running water. And the amazing thing is, to travel to Magosho, you've got to bring a rig in. And what happens is, you begin boring down, and it literally takes about four days, but you begin drilling down 20 feet, 30 feet. They bring in local teams who are trained locally, so it's sustainable and you drill down about 60 feet, and it takes a while. It actually takes the first full day just to get the board going, but overnight, you keep drilling, and then finally till day two or day three, you hit the aquifer, and living water explodes out of the ground, and people from the village just come. They're just like, we hit water, jackpot. And then they begin capping it. It takes another day to kind of put the cap on, and literally you bring living water to that village. That's the new clean potable water they have at that healthcare center in Magosho. And I was like, well, how many, how many wells can you drill with a rig? And they said, you could drill a well 
a week. And I was like, wait, let me do the math on that. That's 52 wells a year. It's not cheap. It's not $50,000. It's actually $250,000. But the difference is this. Our clean water well efforts will no longer be analog. Two wells here, then four, six over here, but exponential. I mean, think about this. One a week, 52 weeks a year, and then 52 weeks the next year, and 52 wells the year after that, you get the difference. Over time, we're not talking about 8,000 people served, but 20,000, and 20 after that, and the 20 the year after that, and really in just the next five years, we'd be talking about 100,000 lives saved. 100,000 lives of the poorest of the poor served in Jesus' name. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church I want to be. That's the kind of kingdom mission Jesus had in mind when he said, boldly go where no one's gone before until I return. And again, our desire, folks, is to widen our circle of empathy and bring the kingdom of God in a compassionate way that meets people's practical needs. So what we decided to do is this. We're taking the $50,000 and using it as a down payment to purchase our very own liquid church drill rig. Imagine this. We're going to buy our own drill rig that literally will crisscross Africa every week, 52 weeks a year, for the next 10 years. I mean, talk about exponential impact. I want you to imagine this because probably next year, it's on the Liquid Church homepage. We'll literally have via satellite video. You'll be able to see, here's the Liquid Church drill rig coming to a new village, and we're going to watch every week where we're bringing living water in Christ's name, where it's needed most. And 50,000 is a great start. We're about 200K short. So (laughs) to cap off our summer of fun... We are hosting a 5K run for the rig on Sunday, September 6th. That's actually Labor Day weekend. A 5K run in which we're going to invite you to get involved, roll up your sleeves in a personal way, and run for the rig. Our hope is to get 1,000 people running all across New Jersey, across our Melbourne, across Internet campus, overseas, 1,000 people. We figure 1,000 people raise like 250 bucks each. That's 250000 for this drill rig. And the idea is you can run, Or you can ride your bike, because if you're like me, you're like, I don't know about this running business. You can ride your bike, you can roll on your Harley, you can walk, whatever you want to do. And then together at the end, we're going to rock together because it culminates in a concert for the cause. We're calling it a rock and run for the rig. If you're interested, you need to go to liquidchurch.com and sign up online. We're going to be in touch with the details of this. But we want to be part of a global movement because we feel like the kingdom of God is rapidly advancing and we get to be a part of it. I'll be honest with you, I I feel like this is one of the most exciting times alive to be a follower of Jesus, yes? Amen? It's a (laughs) win-win. I mean, if Christ returns tomorrow, the kingdom comes fully. And if it's another thousand years, we get to help build it. We get to bring it together. Rick Warren says the first Reformation was about creeds. There was a debate over doctrine. And the next one will be about deeds, about compassion and social justice as our circle of empathy expands. And we realize that the greatest apologetic has been and always will be love without strings. High tech, sure. High touch, you better believe it. You better believe it. This is where we're headed, folks. This is the mission that Jesus gave us and to which our church and you are invited until he comes again. To boldly go where no man has gone before even to the ends of the earth. Amen? Awesome. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. It's exciting. We're excited to be your followers. We're excited to inherit the mantle 
from the early church fathers and mothers who went before us. Right now, I pray that you will send your spirit into this room to all the people watching online. Let them know they are part of a mission bigger than all of us. And Jesus, you are at the forefront. You are our captain. This is your, this is your mission, Lord Jesus, and you've called us into it. It's a co-mission. So Father, right now, I pray that you'll touch the men and the women Pour into them boldness, Father. Pour pour into them purpose, a sense that they have an eternal destiny in your great plan for, for this world. We look forward to your coming, Jesus. We look forward to meeting you in the air. We pray that in your precious name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.